You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. People don't necessarily upgrade their homes or get insulation or solar panels on the roof because of just the economic reasons. It's also very much what their neighbors think. I think ultimately when we get judged, (laughs) that will be judged on our exergy efficiency rather than our energy efficiency. For February 7th, 2024. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. One of the most important yet least discussed aspects of the energy transition is how to reduce the energy consumption of buildings, specifically heating and cooling. As we discussed in episode 215, providing heat accounts for half of global final energy consumption. And according to the IEA, heat is the largest end use of energy, contributing fully 40% of global CO2 emissions. Most of that heat is used in buildings. Heating and cooling buildings consumes 30% of global final energy and accounts for about half of the energy used in buildings. And it produces 26% of global energy-related emissions because fossil fuels still meet over 60% of heating energy demand. I'll say it again. Heating is the largest end use of energy. If you wanted to reduce the single largest source of energy-related carbon emissions, you'd probably start there. And yet we don't. In fact, the ways that we heat buildings, and more importantly, the ways that we lose heat from buildings, barely register in most energy and climate plans. Nobody even seems to have a plan to attack fully half of our final energy consumption. Because generally, our policies focus on the supply side, when the biggest opportunity is often on the demand side. Improving building efficiency and reducing thermal losses is arguably the most important thing we can do. But most of the world has no strong policy or programs to do it. But if we could solve this problem and reduce thermal leakage in our buildings, it would make all the rest of the energy transition challenges much easier to overcome. For just one example, you have no doubt heard a lot of wild claims about how much seasonal storage will be needed when our power grids are 80% or more supplied by variable renewables. About how we'll need enough storage to meet all of the grid's power demand for weeks at a time. But what would all that stored electricity be needed for? You got it. Around half of it will be needed for heating buildings. So if we could reduce the need for heating buildings, it would reduce the need for not just electricity storage systems, but for everything else upstream. Wind and solar generation, transmission and distribution lines, and so on. Fixing our leaky buildings and improving building standards so that new buildings require less heating and cooling is an absolutely critical part of the energy transition. In fact, I don't think the energy transition can really succeed without solving this problem, which is why we are increasingly focusing on it on this show. When I look around and ask what are the most critical needs in the energy transition, the answer is never the kind of high-tech solutions that the press loves to write about. Hydrogen and DAC and CCS and SMRs and long-duration storage and so on. No. The most critical needs are what Marie-Claire Brisbois called unglamorous solutions in episode 196 of our show. It's windows, wall cavity insulation, caulking, and yes, heat pumps. This is why we did episode 170 on thermal storage and district energy, episode 208 on vernacular architecture, and episode 215 on the IEA's outlook on the demand for fossil fuels. And it's why we are bringing you another episode on that subject today. 
The building standard known as Passive House defines the performance of a highly efficient building and identifies a number of well-established methods for making buildings highly efficient. Originating in Germany, the Passive House standard is now used all over the world. If buildings are retrofit to meet the standard, it will radically reduce the energy requirements of buildings and make the energy transition much easier to achieve. Our guest today is an expert in passive house techniques who walked the talk and did a deep retrofit on his own house in the rainiest and coldest part of Scotland. As Tresseter is a passive house consultant who works with an architecture firm to advance the use of the passive house standard and techniques. He's also a longtime fan of the show. So as part of my travels across Scotland in September of 2023, I visited him and got a tour of the many improvements as made to his house. And I can attest that it is very comfortable and warm. And, as you'll hear in this interview, it now costs him a small fraction of what it used to cost to maintain that comfort. In fact, he said that he hadn't even turned on the single heat pump that now maintains the temperature in the house in months. And in keeping with my trip as the genesis of this episode, the new segment of this show is entirely composed of stories from the UK. We'll recognize the progress on the decarbonization of the UK's power grid. We'll check out a landmark new subsea transmission line. We'll note a new port electrification project. We'll see how a plan to repurpose the UK's natural gas pipelines for hydrogen is coming along. And we'll salute a new demand flexibility service offer for customers. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers. Quadrature Climate Foundation is a major foundation based in London that invests in solutions to reduce emissions, remove greenhouse gases, and manage climate impacts. Power Factors offers a platform for clean energy asset management and optimization and is based in San Francisco. And Integrity Energy Partners is an energy services company focused on improving the energy performance of buildings based in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're incredibly pleased to have all of them on board. And now, our conversation with Ez Tresseter, recorded January 19th, 2024. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Ez, to the Energy Transition Show. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. As you know, myself and my eldest son are longtime listeners of the show. I find it's a really good way to get a well-rounded but detailed overview of the whole energy transition. It can be easy to lose sight of the big picture when you're engaged in just one aspect of it, and it helps keep me motivated to understand the rapid progress that's being made in other equally crucial fields. I hope I can provide an insight to your listeners into building energy efficiency and why we should be so excited about it. I'm sure you will. And I'm really glad that we can finally have you on the show because we've been having a conversation about this stuff for a very long time. All right, well, let's start with the basics. What is Passive House? What does that term mean? So Passive House is an energy and comfort standard for buildings. And originally it was developed for houses, for domestic buildings, but it's now been applied to a wide range of non-domestic buildings, including schools, offices, leisure centres and hospitals. And it offers a quality-assured route to radically reducing energy use with exemplary comfort and air quality. Really importantly, because it has such a keen focus on detail and quality assurance, it eliminates what's called the performance gap. And at the risk of getting too detailed too early, I'll just quickly go into a sideline about what the performance gap is because it's really, really important when we're talking about low energy buildings. Okay. This is the often very sizable difference between the predicted and the actual energy performance of buildings. And by sizable, I mean really sizable. A 2020 paper looking at this said that new buildings 
in the UK typically have a space heating demand that's 100 to 150 percent higher than predicted at design stage. That's more than double the heating demand that you would predict at design stage when you actually measure it in use. Wow. And this gap will be bigger where the weather is more severe because for the whole of the UK, we're using a standardized climate file to do the energy modeling of buildings for building regulations. And so if you're somewhere like the west coast of Scotland, quite far north, very, very windy, the performance gap will typically be much bigger than this because one of the big problems is in terms of quality assurance is is the air tightness of the buildings. And so where you're somewhere windy, I suspect if you systematically monitored the energy performance of buildings where I live here in Loch Arbor on the west coast of Scotland, you would see a bigger performance gap here because it's so windy. Interesting. So the standard or the performance of the building on paper can't really take into account the variability of the actual environment that the house may be in. And so that's why this underperformance or whatever relative to the standard happens. Some of it is that. So some of it is not using accurate enough climate data. And that's addressed in the passive house standard. You use much more much more local climate data than you would do for building regulations. Mm. But there's a lot more to it than that. Also, there's not sufficient detail at the modeling stage for the energy assessment that takes place for building regulations. It's quite generic. It's not detailed enough. Mm. It's generally not conservative enough. So one of the things that the Passive House modeling pushes you towards is that if you're going to make assumptions, then you err on the side of overestimating stuff. And if you want to step away from that and say, well, actually, I'm doing better than this conservative assumption, then you have to do some modeling to show that you are actually doing better than that conservative assumption. So some of it's about assumptions and modeling, but a lot of it is about quality assurance in the actual build. So things like insulation being put in properly make a really, really big difference to the actual performance of that insulation. So Mm. you can have a wall or a floor or a roof build up that on paper looks like a really high performance element. It's got plenty of insulation. Um, That insulation has very low thermal conductivity. Fantastic. On paper, it looks great. But if you install that insulation with significant gaps in it, so anything bigger than about two or three millimeters, we should be worried about. You can reduce the performance of that insulation quite dramatically. And there's similar things to do with, at a more severe level, not just installing insulation badly, but missing insulation completely is pretty common. The air tightness standard for new buildings for building regulations is easy enough to meet that generally what happens is a lot of the air tightness measures employed aren't very durable or long term because they're designed to meet a a not very difficult target on the day that the building is completed. And over the next few years, the performance of that air tightness will will deteriorate significantly. Whereas with Passive House, the air tightness requirement is so stringent that you can't really bodge your way through it. You have to have robust measures in place. And that tends to mean that the performance lasts for the lifetime of the building. Interesting. So some of its performance gap is down to modeling. Some of it is down to poor build quality and poor quality assurance. And some of it is down to user behavior. So people use buildings in ways that you didn't predict they were going to use. You can't really account for that that well you know if you design a building and you model it for people closing the windows 
and then they have the windows open all night, every night, then obviously they're going to use more heating. But if you look at the average performance of a sample of passive house buildings, it correlates very closely to what the predicted performance was. Whereas if you look at the spread of performance of a set of building regulations, buildings, the, the heating demand is much higher on average than you predicted at the design stage. All right. So some of our listeners are undoubtedly aware of the passive house standard for buildings, but is there just one such standard or are there different passive house standards in various regions? So there's one passive house standard as defined by the Passive House Institute, which is the body in Germany that oversees passive house building certification all over the world. And for that, you've got similar criteria applying in all regions, but with specific climate data for wherever you are in the world. If I was designing a, a building for you in northern Arizona, I would use a local climate file and I'd end up with very different numbers to it for a building here in, in Loch Arbor in Scotland. Okay. Confusingly, there's also a PHIUS standard, and that's the Passive House Institute United States, which I'm not really qualified to speak about. I don't know very much about it. As I understand it, it broke off from the original Passive House Institute in the US and created its own set of standards, which I believe are less demanding than the international PHI standard. Hmm. So in the US, there is PHI-US and there's PHI, and they are different standards. I understand the PHI-US one is less rigorous. Okay. For the rest of the world, though, Passive House should be understood to be buildings certified as Passive House by the Passive House Institute. And that's the one known as PHI. Okay. That's the PHI, yeah. So in the US, you know, some of the buildings calling themselves Passive House in the US will be PHI, and I think some of them will be PHI-US, but okay. there's a bit of a split, a bit of a rift there that I don't quite understand all of the nuance about. All right. So that's the kind of background to what the standard is. What it requires for a heating climate, so a climate where you're going to be requiring significant heating, is you have to meet a modelled energy demand for heating of 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared of floor area. Or for people in the US, that I think this is 4.8 kilo BTUs per square foot. <laughs> and uh, that's <laughs> a unit that all of our listeners are familiar with, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is the only time I'm going to stray into <laughs> trying to grapple with bizarre American units. Yeah, despite them being called British thermal units, nobody in Britain knows what they are. Right. And so, yeah, very low modeled annual heating demand. And that's the kind of classic requirement that people have heard of is 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared. But actually, that's optional. It can either be 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared of heating demand, or it can be 10 watts per meter squared peak heat load. So on a kind of severe winter's day, what would the heat load for that building be over that 24 hours? Hmm. So it could be 10 watts per meter squared for that. And those numbers won't mean a lot to a lot of your listeners, I imagine. They're about 90% less than a typical existing building in the UK and about 70 to 80% less than a typical new build. Hmm. And I don't know, I haven't looked at this in detail, but I often get the feeling that the scale of this reduction, like those kind of 90% and 70 to 80%, the scale of that reduction is often underestimated in energy wonk circles, I feel like. So not to pick on this episode particularly, but there was the recent episode 215 with Tim Gould and Christopher McClade from the IEA. Right. And they stated that a new house built in the EU today 
uses half the energy to heat than a similar building built 30 years ago. And that's certainly progress, but there is the opportunity to go much, much further than that. A 50% reduction in heat demand is is pretty easy compared to a 90% reduction. And what I hope we'll be able to get into today is that there are numerous co-benefits with doing that. You're not just getting a more efficient building or a more efficient stock of buildings. You're getting a whole host of other other benefits with doing that. Right. So that's heating demand. So for zones, climate zones where you need heating, for zones where you need cooling, there's a maximum of 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared annual cooling demand. There's some variation on that depending on climate and factoring in need for dehumidification or not needing dehumidification. And there's always a requirement for the air tightness of the building to be lower than 0.6 air changes per hour at a pressurization and depressurization of 50 pascals. So that means that we're testing the building when the building's completed. We're testing it by putting a fan in one of the doors or the windows and blowing air into the building until the building is 50 pascals more pressurized than the atmosphere outside. And we're measuring how much air we have to pump into the building to keep that pressure differential. And then we're doing the same thing by sucking air out of the building, Hmm. measuring how much air we have to suck out of the building to keep that pressure differential between inside and outside. Right. So we're making sure that the fabric of the building, there is very, very little air leaking through the fabric of the building. And I'll go into detail in due course about why that's important and the benefits that that has. That's not to be confused with ventilation. When the building's in operation, there is a ventilation system and that provides your fresh air. A few additional requirements on top of that. So we've talked about the heating and the cooling energy demand. That heating and cooling demand is irrespective of plant efficiency. So it's 15 kilowatt hours of heating demand. And if you met that with a heat pump with a coefficient of performance of three, then you'd use five kilowatt hours of electricity per meter squared of floor area. If you met it with an electric radiator that had a coefficient of performance of one, you'd have 15. If it was a gas boiler with a coefficient of performance of 0.9, then it'd be a bit higher than 15. Right. In that first requirement, there's no incentive to have efficient plant, but there is a secondary requirement that the total energy demand is below what they call a primary renewable energy demand of 60 kilowatt hours per meter squared per year. Okay. And The primary renewable energy metric is a bit of a headache, but it's actually a really good metric. So as we move towards grids that are increasingly decarbonized, and you'll know that our grid in the UK is decarbonizing quite rapidly, measuring environmental performance on CO2 emissions becomes more and more meaningless if you're talking about the heating, because so long as you're using electric heating, well, eventually that's all going to be zero carbon, right? So once we're at a zero carbon grid, as we, and this becomes the case as we get closer and closer to a zero carbon grid, once you're at a zero carbon grid, if you're measuring your environmental performance on CO2 emissions, then whether you use a heat pump or whether you use direct electric heating doesn't make any difference because they're both zero carbon. But we know that that's nonsense. In reality, there are numerous other reasons to go for using less energy than using more energy even if it's zero carbon. right? So this metric of primary renewable energy is it's essentially taking a look forward and saying, right, if we had 
an energy system that was almost exclusively or possibly exclusively, I don't know, I didn't do the modeling behind this, but I think it's exclusively renewables. So if we had an energy system that was exclusively powered by renewable energy, that would involve over-generation at some times of the year, under-generation at other times of the year. So there would need to be inter-seasonal storage. There would also need to be diurnal storage to account for times of the day when we've got more energy than we need and times of the day when we've got less energy than we need. Those storage technologies have losses associated with them. So for a kilowatt hour, for example, for a kilowatt hour of electricity used for heating in the winter, we might need to generate 1.5 kilowatt hours of electricity from a wind turbine because we've got to put some of that electricity into storage with associated losses before we take it back out on average 1.5, say. So that primary renewable energy metric allows us to design buildings that will require as little energy from a future renewable energy system as possible. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the requirement there is 60 kilowatt hours. But because it's quite a complicated metric, don't try comparing that 60 to any other metric that you've used before because it's not very, it doesn't track over quite directly like that. So those are the main criteria. There are a few subsidiary criteria around thermal comfort and hygiene. And how all of these criteria are met is up to the designer. So the passive house standard is not prescriptive on materials or build techniques. Um, you, you can build a passive house any way you like, so long as it meets the criteria. But the criteria are stringent enough that for most of Europe and most of North America, it does mean that you're going to need high-performance triple glazing and heat recovery ventilation. So that's the basic criteria for passive house buildings. There are two higher categories on top of that classic category, and they have the same requirements as the classic category, but they add in requirements for renewable energy generation and further reductions in primary renewable energy demand. So there's a plus and a premium category. Gotcha. And I should point out for our listeners who may not know it, glazing is another way of saying windows. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So windows or anything with glass in it. So right. it can be doors as well. Okay. And I've mentioned a little bit there, and I've said earlier on that it's an energy and a comfort standard. So perhaps now is time to go on another quick diversion into thermal comfort, because that's really important in understanding the benefits of very high performance buildings beyond reductions in energy use. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. 
Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to an analysis by Carbon Brief, the share of UK electricity generated from fossil fuels fell to 33% in 2023, a record low, while the share generated from renewables rose to 43%, a record high. The remainder was provided by nuclear at 13%, imports at 7%, and other sources at 3%. Renewables first outpaced fossil generation in 2020, then the two battled for pole position in the ensuing two years. But renewables look likely to hold on to their number one position now, as fossil fuel generation fell a whopping 22% year-on-year in 2023, its lowest level since 1957. Gas fire generation accounted for nearly all of the fossil share, with coal accounting for just 1% of generation and oil less than 1%. Three of the UK's four remaining coal-fired power plants shut down in 2023, leaving the country with just one coal-fired power station still operating. Wind dominates renewable supply in the UK, with 82 terawatt hours in 2023. The remainder of renewable generation came from bioenergy at 35 terawatt hours, solar at 14 terawatt hours, and hydro at 5 terawatt hours. Notably, the 2023 total for renewables was 135 terawatt hours, essentially the same generation as in 2020 and 2022. However, generation for bioenergy and hydro have fallen by a few terawatt hours in that time, which was made up by growth in wind and solar. Having largely stagnated since 2018, solar is now expected to grow by roughly 50% through 2025. And after the unfortunate pause in offshore wind growth due to the failed CFD auction, as we detailed in episode 213, offshore wind should grow robustly again, starting in 2025. Item 2. The world's longest land and subsea transmission interconnector, known as Viking Link, started commercial operations at the end of 2023. With 1.4 gigawatts of capacity, the HVDC link stretches 475 miles under land and sea. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.